Blog Talk Radio. Hello again. We're back for a new episode of the AJ Bruno Show. I'm joined today by best-selling author and expert on religious history and radical Islam, um, Robert Spencer. It's great to have him with us, and uh, let's get him online. Hello. Hey, good to be here. Thank you. Sure. Well, let's uh, Hello? let's get right into your to your background. Uh, what was it that that led you to to study Catholic history originally, and how did that lead to your expanded interest in studying Islam to such a vast extent? Well, actually, I know you must have read the Catholic history thing on Wikipedia. Uh, that's actually not true. What I was studying was the history of the early church in general and uh, the uh, uh, development of its understanding of Christ. And I was studying that as a matter of uh, historical interests. I was studying Islam at the same time as a matter of personal interest in uh, uh, trying to understand what had happened to my family who were exiled from the Ottoman Empire for declining to convert to Islam. And so that was something I was doing uh, essentially on my own, and that, of course, led to the work that I'm doing today. Well, it was actually leading into my my next point. Um, as, As someone coming from a, a Greek uh, Catholic background and having family persecuted and, and forced into exile for being Christians, uh, how much of an influence that have on you in terms of personally identifying with the change, with the, with the damage that fundamentalist Islam has done to Christian communities in the, in, in the Middle East? Well, certainly it's something that I, uh, that I know very well because of my own family's experience. Uh, a lot of people say, well, see, you're, you're just uh, trying to react to this. Well, I was actually just trying to understand it, not necessarily to uh, do anything about it at all. But the geopolitical situation was such that people wanted to know about the teachings of Islam and jihad, and I was in a position to uh, address that need at the time right after 9-11, after consulting privately with some organizations and individuals in the 90s. And so uh, uh, this led to my public work. It wasn't really actually anything I expected. Sure. Well, getting into the little more into the Ottoman Empire, um, why is it that nowadays Turkey is considered such a strong ally of the U.S. or maybe less so with uh, recent events? But given their background of you know denying genocide and really a, a dark history comparable to you know Nazi Germany or Stalin's Soviet Union, I mean, what is it that gets them passed in, in a lot of these cases? Well, it was a repudiation of that. Uh, the secular Turkish Republic was founded in the 1920s as an explicit rejection excuse me, of political Islam. And uh, the founder of modern Turkey, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, very much uh, was a, uh, an opponent of political Islam and wanted to fashion the Turkish Republic on secular Western models, which he did and made, placed many restrictions on political Islam. So Turkey, the uh, Western uh, orbit during the Cold War, and became an ally of the United States. Uh, but that was, a basis of, uh, that was on the basis of Turkey being a secular republic. It was, not, not, uh, it was not on the basis of Turkey being the Ottoman Caliphate, which Erdogan, the president of Turkey now, is trying to revive. And so it is high time that the alliance be revisited and reevaluated in light of the dismantling of secular Turkey that Erdogan is pursuing and its increasing hostility 
towards the United States and the West in general as it re-Islamizes. So do you see that situation heading more towards in the Iran direction? Because I hear probably more nowadays about Turkey than I do with, with Iran. Yeah, it's very much like that. Turkey is becoming like Iran. It will eventually not become probably an Islamic Republic, but because of its history, will probably restore the caliphate, claim to be the new caliphate, and claim the, uh, uh, claim the government of all Muslims as being the, uh, the, the only legitimate government for Muslims, which is what the caliphate actually is in mm-hmm. Sunni Islamic theology. Um, that is what Erdogan seems to want to do to reconstitute the Ottoman Caliphate. So that would be the only difference. The uh, Iranian regime is based on the ideas of the Ayatollah Khomeini, who argued that the uh, uh, prophet of Islam, Muhammad, was a cleric, obviously, and was also a political leader. And thus the only legitimate political leaders in Islam are Muslim clerics. And uh, this is uh, sort of a new idea, really, that was used to justify the Islamic Republic of Iran's foundations. In Turkey, uh, that's a Shiite idea. And in Turkey, of course, they're Sunnis. And this caliphate is a Sunni idea. Mm -hmm. So you you worked many years at at think tanks. Um, Do you have any insight after all that experience as to why there has not been a solution produced to deal with the threat of radical Islam is there just not enough effort on the matter, or can no one come up with a viable solution? Well, no one's being realistic. Uh, prevailing in the Washington think tanks, even on the conservative side, is a willful ignorance regarding the nature and magnitude of the threat. They are willing to say, many of them, that is not all of them, are willing to say that there is a problem within Islam, but most of them want to insist that there is no real problem with Islam itself properly understood and applied. And they want to pretend that the jihadis are twisting and hijacking the peaceful teachings of Islam. And if only we could get Muslims to go back to those, then everything would be okay. This is not really the case. And so the problem is, it's just like if you go to a doctor and the doctor diagnoses your problem wrongly, then he's not going to give you the right solution. And so all the solutions that have been proposed for dealing with this, they're based on false premises, and so they don't work. One of the most notorious of those is the idea that poverty causes terrorism, that uh, people join jihad groups because they are disenfranchised, because they don't have education, because they don't have money and economic opportunity. And so we went into Iraq and Afghanistan and showered billions of dollars upon these people, and we built roads and schools and hospitals. And they had every reason, therefore, if this analysis were correct, to lay aside their arms and stop the jihad. They didn't, because the jihad does not really come from poverty. Osama bin Laden was one of the richest men in the world. There are many, many rich people who have pursued jihad over the years. And so because the premise was wrong, the solution didn't work. And we did not win hearts and minds or win much goodwill in Iraq and Afghanistan with all our billions of dollars at all. If the problem had been properly diagnosed, we might have been able to come up with more effective solutions. See, I used to be more supportive of those conflicts, but now looking back, uh, I feel like people don't give enough attention to the fact that the results of the war in Iraq resulted in essentially the collapse of the Christian community there. As, as bad as Saddam was, uh, he at least did not 
go and persecute them to the level they are um, with the with the government not being as stable or being able to control the situation. And in Afghanistan, I was shocked when I found out that it's actually punishable by death to convert to Christianity. And this is the sort of regime that we prop up with, you know, billions of dollars and thousands of lost lives. It just doesn't make sense to me. Well, two things about that. In the first place, both of those things are very closely related to Islam. In Iraq, Saddam Hussein was not an Islamic ruler. He came out of the Arab nationalist movement, which was exactly that. It was a movement based on the unity of Arabs ethnically and not on Islam. Uh, as a matter of fact, there were some Christian Arabs who were very prominent in the foundations of the Arab nationalist movement. And so Saddam Hussein did not originally govern according to Islamic tenets. Now, actually, the, uh, the, the, he moved toward Islam as time went on because he saw the way the wind was blowing and he saw how things were going, uh, that people were becoming more interested in political Islam. So he moved in that direction. But essentially, his government was not Islamic and he did not govern according to Islamic law. So he had a Christian vice president, Tariq Aziz, and the Christians in Iraq uh, enjoyed relatively equal status with the Muslims. Never completely equal, because there were a lot of cultural hangovers from Islamic law than the application of Islamic law, but still uh, pretty close, uh, much better than in Sharia states like Saudi Arabia or Iran. Now, nobody foresaw what was going to happen, but it was really quite easy to see. And I say nobody. Actually, I predicted it in an article in March 2003, just as the invasion was beginning, that there were people in Iraq, most people in Iraq, believed in Islam and wanted an Islamic regime, wanted one that was constituted according to Islamic law. Now, Islamic law mandates second-class status for Christians and other non-Muslims. And so it was inevitable that the Christians were going to be put upon, were going to be persecuted in the new regimes and the new, uh, the new people who were w ruling various parts of Iraq. They were going to not be nice to the Christians. And this is exactly what happened. And, of course, they also blamed them, associating them with the U.S. and the West, blamed them for the invasion. And so the Christian community of Iraq was decimated. This was an entirely foreseeable and preventable outcome. In Afghanistan, same thing. You mentioned that people are put to death for leaving Islam. That's actually Islamic law that is applied wherever Islamic law is fully applied. Then you will have a death penalty for leaving Islam. You have it not only in Afghanistan, therefore, but in Saudi Arabia, in Iran, in Sudan, in Pakistan, everywhere where Islamic law is fully applied. And so we are going into Afghanistan to establish a Western-style secular republic that's going to be a beacon of moderate Islam or a beacon of freedom for the surrounding region. And this is the way the Bush administration was talking in those days when they were, they were speaking without any knowledge of what Islam taught or what it was all about or how, how difficult, well-nigh impossible it was going to be to establish that kind of a secular regime given the tenets of Islam and its fundamental incompatibility with the idea of a free society that guarantees freedom of conscience. Now, would you say in a state like, for instance, Lebanon, even though the Christian percentage is lower than it used to be, would you correlate that to it being more prosperous and uh, more successful in the past? And, and nowadays, maybe with that influence being reduced, that it's uh, you know, more prone to the sort of uh, outbreaks of, of, of havoc that have occurred more recently? Yeah, absolutely. You can correlate, actually, 
the prosperity of various regions and various countries to the, uh, demog- the religious demographics very easily because Islam does not inculcate a work ethic. As, as a matter of fact, the Caliph Umar, the second successful, six, excuse me, the second successor of Muhammad as the military and political leader of the Islamic community, he emphasized to the Muslims that they had to always be careful to pay the jizya, which is the tax that is specified in the Quran for Jews and Christians and other people of the book, so-called, to pay. They had to always be careful to collect that. He said, because it was the nature, uh, it was the foundations of their livelihood. In other words, he was envisioning the Muslims actually living off the non-Muslims, not working, not being farmers or shopkeepers or what have you, but living off the non-Muslims. And that is actually in Islamic law the ideal society that the non-Muslims pay this tax and are subjugated under the rule of Islamic law, and the Muslims live off the taxes that the non-Muslims pay. And you can look at the great Islamic empires of the past, the caliphates, the Umayyad caliphate, the Abbasid caliphate, the Ottoman caliphate, most notably, and the others. And you can see that when there was a large population of conquered Jews and Christians that were were paying the tax, the jizya, then the empires were prosperous. But when those communities, after paying the tax for years or centuries, were essentially bled dry, then they couldn't pay as much tax and those empires went into decline it wasn't that they had some strong work ethic that allowed for the uh the uh cultivation of a strong native economy based on people working to support themselves that idea it's not it's not absent from the uh it's not absent from the islamic world but it's certainly something that's alien from islamic law and tradition But with that, let's uh, segue into some history. Um, my first introduction to you was reading The Truth About Muhammad years ago, and I thought that was a, a really eye-opening book. Um, there's a lot of disturbing stories in that, too. So uh, what is it that you would say as a response when people argue that the Old Testament has a lot of extreme elements similar to the Quran? Well, you know, if uh, there were 30,000 attacks, uh, terrorist attacks around the world since 9-11 – that were perpetrated by Jews and Christians who believe in the Old Testament and point to it to justify their terrorist acts, then there would be reason to be concerned and concern, and there would be a, uh, a, a real a genuine reason to draw that kind of equivalence. But actually, there have been 30,000 Islamic jihad attacks around the world since 9-11 committed by people who point to the Quran and Muhammad to justify their actions. And no such attacks by Jews or Christians pointing to the Old Testament. And the fact is that there are violent passages in the Old Testament, but they're all description of various people being told uh, very problematic things. There's no doubt about that. Various people being told by God to kill people, but nowhere are they held up as exemplary for all believers or are believers told to imitate them. Whereas in the Quran, the passages that mandate warfare against unbelievers are open-ended and universal. And Islamic scholars actually interpret them as applying for all time. And so you've never had in history Jews or Christians saying that uh, these passages where, say, Joshua clears out a whole city or somebody like that, that they are uh, uh, they're clearing out a new city because they're imitating Joshua. You've never had that. Even during the time of the Crusades, those passages were not invoked to justify violence. 
But in uh, Islam, these passages are routinely invoked by Islamic jihadis today. Sometimes people also use the argument that Islam is 600-some-odd years younger than Christianity, and so it behaves the way they would say Christians did you know, that period of time ago. What would you say to something like that? Well, you know, the foundations are not the same. Uh, when you look at uh, Hinduism or Buddhism, 600 years uh, into their development and Christianity, 600 years into it, there's no resemblance because their premises are different. Their basic teachings are different. And consequently, they don't develop in the same ways. And it's the same thing with Christianity and Islam. Islam teaches uh, in three places. The Quran says, kill them wherever you find them. In the Quran, in chapter 48, verse 29, it says, Muhammad is the apostle of Allah. Those who follow him are merciful to one another, but ruthless to the unbelievers. Now, there is no place in the New Testament where it tells Christians to be ruthless to non-Christians. As a matter of fact, it tells them to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And consequently, those, uh, the entire premises of the religions are different, and thus their development is not going to be the same either. Hmm. So in the uh, Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam and the Crusades, uh, you make the sensible argument about the Crusades being long-delayed defensive wars. How is it that we are still engaging in a continuation of these same conflicts all this time later, and, and how can we possibly prevail given the extreme lack of Judeo-Christian moral values exhibited in the, world, in the West, Western world today? Well, that's a very excellent question, actually. Uh, we're still seeing these conflicts, not on the one side, not on the Crusaders' side, but on the jihadi side, because the jihadis have never changed their basic beliefs. As long as there are people who believe in the Quran and Muhammad and in Islam, then there are going to be people who believe that they have a responsibility before Allah to wage war against unbelievers and subjugate them under the rule of Islamic law. This isn't really very difficult, because as long as there are going to be believers in the book, that's what the book says. And people pretend that's not what the book says. People pretend that that's not what it really means. The proof of the pudding is in the eating, as the English say. And the fact is that there are so many Muslims around the world who are reading the Quran and believing that it does mandate violence against unbelievers, that makes it very clear that that is a mainstream understanding within the Islamic tradition and community. And so as long as there are believers, there's going to be jihad. Now, why, are, is it, why is it so difficult for Westerners to grasp this? Why is it such that uh, n nobody sees this today? There's been a very great uh, effort at misinformation and disinformation in the West particularly since 9-11. George W. Bush bears a lot of the responsibility for it, even if he didn't originate it. He certainly propagated it when right after 9-11 he went into a mosque and he said, Islam is a religion of peace and so on. Uh, this was false. It was demonstrably false. It's still false. And it not only was a false statement, but it made for bad public policy. Uh, for example, the, we were discussing at the beginning the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. And the Bush administration believed that they were going to uh, be able to establish secular Western-style democracies in both countries, and that they would be beacons of moderation and peace for the surrounding areas of the Middle East. They could only have believed that if they didn't know anything about Islam. And they only didn't know anything about Islam because they were believing people who were Islamic apologists, like uh, Karen Armstrong and... Uh, John Esposito, who teach that Islam is peace and so on. And so they don't have really any idea what they're dealing with. And they end up getting us into these 
uh, tangles because they don't really know how to uh, approach this challenge, this threat. But it's really the same threat that the West has faced now for 14 centuries. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a greater threat, um, not just numerically, but in terms of um, how radicalized they are from, from Sunnis compared to Shia? No, it's just a difference in tactic. Uh, I wrote a book, The Complete Infidel's Guide to Iran, a few years back, and in it I show that the, 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 the Shiites don't generally go in for uh, street attacks, you know, going into a nightclub and shooting 50 people or uh, what have you. They don't do terrorist attacks like that or fly planes into buildings. They're actually working at this very, very much more intelligently. Uh, they are working to undermine the West by allying and aiding radical uh, elements. Uh, you see that just recently uh, the Ayatollah Khamenei tweeted out that there ought to be gun control and so on, and uh, uh, allying with the left in the United States in that regard. And uh, there have been, it was found actually a few years back, it's in the book, that the Iranian government was funding a Spanish leftist political party that has nothing to do with Islam, but what they're just trying to do is undermine the West. And, of course, the left is very much on board with the jihadis in any case because they, hate, they both hate the West and they see themselves as kindred as a result. And so mm-hmm. the Iranians are also funding Hezbollah. Hezbollah is working with the drug dealers, the drug cartels in Mexico with an eye toward destabilizing American society and so on. This kind of thing, really, it... Uh, creates the same intended effect as the jihad attacks that the Sunnis pursue, but may be ultimately in the long run even more effective in working toward their goal. Mm-hmm. I think there's been a lot of uh, disrupting of, of Western society in general, but in particular, I think Europe has it even worse than we do here. Um, where do you see the future of, of the continent, the way things stand with a combination of low birth rates going on there and the enormous amount of Muslim immigration? Well, you know, Bernard Lewis, the historian, said it very clearly. Europe will be Islamic by the end of this century. And that just seems to be a matter of the numbers. It's not a hard thing to figure out because the uh, Native European, the non-Muslim Europeans are not reproducing, and the Muslims are at tremendous rates because they've got polygamy. And so with three or four uh, wives, you can have 20-some children, and that's not really all that unusual. And so Mm -hmm. you've got that kind of growth you're going to see Muslim majorities in, by mid-century, I think, in some, Muslim, some of the European countries. And when you have Muslim majorities, you're going to have calls for Islamic law. Hmm. The problem with, with something like this is whenever it's brought up, people are branded as, as racist and, and bigots and all sorts of vile terms. Um, and I know there's been a rise of parties that are speaking out against this more, but do you think it's is it too late? What would you suggest as a solution to this? Well, I don't think it's ever too late. It's never too late. As a matter of fact, even if the United States were to fall and become an Islamic state, which I don't think is very likely, uh, nonetheless, even if it were to happen, it's still not too late. There's always a way for free people to fight back, to resist, to work for the good. Uh, in any case, in Europe, it's also not over. I think there's going to be a great deal of strife before it is over. And... Uh, there are probably going to be Islamic states established in Europe, but there are also a lot of people there who are never going to allow for that, never going to stand for that. And so uh, we're going to see quite a lot of interesting things happen before this is over. Well, one of the 
main, probably the main conflict exacerbating this whole situation, even more so now would be what's going on in Syria today. Do you think there's been irreversible damage done to the Christian community there? And, and what happens when the last pocket of ISIS are, are finally wiped out? It looks like they probably will be at some point. Uh, probably there is irreversible damage. Um, certainly some people I know are going back, and I hope that more will go back. But still, the situation there is very unstable. And it's uh, not as if that everything is okay now and it's all going to be fine. And so I can understand why some people would want to never go back. And I wouldn't be in the least surprised if those communities, those Christian communities in Iraq and Syria never regain the numbers that they had, uh, say, on September 11th, 2001. Uh, But at the same time, it's still possible for Christian communities to maintain a presence in, in that area, but they would need the protection of the local governments and probably of the superpower as well. And that is not necessarily something that's always going to be forthcoming. Barack Obama said that the Obama administration was – sorry, Barack Obama said that the Trump administration was just a speed bump on their way to attaining their goals. And if that turns out to be the case, then the Christian communities could be eradicated completely in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Well, that whole situation is um, – you know, it's really hard to, to determine what the best course of action is. Um, I think probably – Helping the regime there is, once again, as bad as some people say they are, um, you can't really trust a lot of these rebel groups. I mean, are there any, besides Indeed. for obviously the Kurds, um, any that can really be trusted, or are they just all Islamists um, trying to take over? Well, you know, it, it's hard to generalize. You're talking about a vast region and a lot of different groups. Um, but certainly there are very many groups there in the Middle East that want to uh, – uh, make sure that Islamic law is implemented and are ready to make that happen in whatever way they can. Uh, that being the case, there's going to be some of that in the Middle East, but also there will be countercurrents as well. Um, Arab nationalism is pretty much moribund as a live philosophy, but it was at one time the reigning philosophy in the uh, whole Middle East. And so I wouldn't count out that being something that could be resurgent or some actual rejection of Islam uh, coming out of Iran. There are many people who are not just disgusted with the Islamic Republic, but with Islam itself as being the foundations of the brutality and inhumanity of the Islamic Republic. And so that could grow uh, and become a large-scale movement, and they might be able to beat up with uh, Sunnis who are just as disenchanted with Islam and make it into something that could even create a non-Muslim polity in the Middle East. But that would be, mm-hmm. certainly the odds are against that, but it's uh, the disgust with the Islamic Republic of Iran is so deep within I- is Iran that that has to be acknowledged as at least some uh, remote possibility. Mm-hmm. Sure. So you've, uh, you've conducted seminars on, on Islam and jihad for a, a variety of government and military agencies. I'm curious how you originally sought out to do that, and, and what was that experience like? Well, I was invited to do that, actually, by various FBI and military personnel, and they brought me in to some military bases, to some FBI centers, to the uh, National Counterintelligence Center in, uh, in, in Northern Virginia and other places. And what I would generally do, not always, but generally, usually I would uh, speak about the Quran and Islam and just give them a general introduction to the mindset of the people they were countering. 
that the the world view of these people who they were fighting what is in the mind of a terrorist what is he trying to do why is he trying to do it what is he what is he possibly going to do next these were the kinds of things that i would discuss based on a general introduction to the quran and to the life of muhammad Mm. um did that inspire you to to start jihad watch eventually or was that uh, before you started to get involved in that no i was very interested in that because i uh wanted to in 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 jihad watch what i wanted to do was try to uh fill a gap that i saw in what um in the coverage of these things that the uh that i well i wanted to have one website where there would be all the jihad news and i didn't see one out there so i started it myself mm. and what's like the the day-to-day of that operation I'm sorry. What what was the question? Sorry. Uh, what's the day to day of that operation like? What do you, you know, what do you usually do? Oh, just type. Um, <laughs> mm. What I do is <laughs> I go through the my various sources, uh, various Google alerts and news wires, and uh, some people who write me and to alert me to news items, and I uh, uh, pick out ones that I think will be of most interest or are most pertinent to. Uh, what I'm trying to shed light on here, and uh, that's basically it. We post generally at least 10 news stories a day, uh, sometimes feature commentary by uh, some of the top analysts on this issue. Uh, We Mm -hmm. offer perspective that you're not going to find anywhere else because we're one of the few places, if not the only one, where we reject this establishment mainstream view that's held by both Democrats and Republicans that uh, Islam is benign and there's no problem with it, and the only problem is this hijacked version of it. It would be nice mm. if that were true, but it isn't, and we're not going to gain anything by wishful thinking or willful ignorance. Sure. Well, in the, in the last few minutes, I want to get to some of the personal targeting you faced uh, by people who claim they support uh, a free society. Um, just in the past year or so, I know there's been a number of incidents where um, you've gone to speak at different um, universities and institutions. Um, that you've been treated, uh, shall we say, less than uh, hospitably. Um, I find that really ironic that they would, there'd be so many people behaving that way towards you there. Um, how do you handle these, these sorts of situations? Well, you know, insofar as they'll discuss matters, then I'm happy to discuss them. I'll debate or discuss with anybody. Uh, but, uh, you know, you notice that, uh, say, for example, Stanford University, where they uh, acted as if it was Jack the Ripper coming to uh, <laughs> campus, and they uh, they protested, they wrote all these attack articles, and finally they walked out, and then the administrators refused to let people who actually wanted to come to enter the room. And so uh, that was uh, clearly an indication that they were not interested in having any kind of rational discussion. They're not interested in engaging. They just wanted to engage in virtue signaling and sloganeering and so on. Uh, And so there's no talking to people who won't talk, of course, but I have had plenty of debates and discussions. You can find a lot of them on YouTube. Um, The thing is there's a concerted effort to silence the point of view that I represent. They can't refute what we say. And so they're trying to forcibly silence us. And doing that with many things. I mean, one of you know, you've mentioned the the uh, shaming, the opprobrium, the name calling, the uh, uh, you know, the racist, bigot, Islamophobe, all this business. Um, these things are designed to turn people of goodwill away 
and make people think that uh, what we're saying is some heinous thing. Uh, and this is a very concerted and well-funded effort, notably by the Southern Poverty Law Center and others. <laughs> Excuse me. It's been quite effective, but all, uh, it, all it ultimately testifies to is the fact that we are telling the truth, and they know we're telling the truth, so they can't refute us. They have to bully us into silence. Mm-hmm. Well, you've even been targeted by the, the British government, which for one of the first modern democracies to go after you, and the, the person who's the <clears> prime <throat> minister now, I believe, is responsible for you being banned from the country for, for three to five years. Um, how do you reconcile a a once great nation like that saying it's okay to allow imams in the country who preach support for terrorism but are willing to behave in an authoritarian way towards someone for being outspoken like you? Well, I, uh, I, I do keep a perspective on it. It's, a lot of people say, oh, uh, this guy is banned from entering Britain. He must be some sort of criminal because they don't realize what's going on in Britain, that uh, Britain is, as you have noted, they have a long record, and I keep track now, of all the jihad preachers that they let into the country, and they have no problem getting in and preaching jihad and hatred all around the UK. Uh, But they have banned me and Pamela Geller and others uh, because we are teaching that jihad is something that ought to be opposed, and they want to create a moral equivalence and pretend that there is a so-called right-wing extremist threat that is just as bad as the jihad threat. Now, this is, of course, ridiculous. We've never uh, counseled violence or approved of violence or called for violence, and we've never been involved in any illegal activity, much less terror activity. So the idea that we are the equivalents of people like Abu Hamza and Abu Qatada, who are two people who were engaged in violent jihad plotting, is ridiculous. But actually, Theresa May, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, uh, accused, uh, likened Pamela Geller and me to Abu Hamza and Abu Qatada last year. And this is the the nonsense that she is trying to put over on the British people. The, and it's really just ultimately to appease the Muslims in the country and uh, to court their votes by uh, giving pretending that there is – well, yes, there's a threat from Islamic jihadis, and there's also a threat from – the right-wing extremists, and we're fighting both. That's the official British government line, as ridiculous as it is. No, I mean, even going back to Churchill, he spoke out about radical Islam all the way back then, and for them to have someone like this as their prime minister, when they used to have a person of that caliber, it's been a long way down, it seems. Yes, you're quite right. Sure. Couldn't agree well, more. Uh, fantastic. Lastly, I wanted to, to ask if there's anything new you're working on that you could uh, tell us about. Yeah, I'm actually very excited about my next book, which will be out this summer, The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. You can uh, already pre-order it at Amazon. And uh, this is the first one-volume treatment, first treatment of any kind in the English language of the entire history of jihad activity, uh, in not just in Europe. There have been other books about the jihad against Europe, but also in uh, the Middle East, in North Africa, in India, all over the world. And... This is the book that, for the first time, pulls it all together and shows that uh, there has been a constant in this activity. It's not just a new thing, a reaction to the U.S., a reaction to Israel, but it's something that has gone on wherever there are Muslims. And I think this is uh, a real uh, game changer, this book, actually, in uh, filling in the blanks. People know about the Quran for the most part, nowadays, that it teaches terrible things. People know that Muhammad taught terrible things, 
but they don't know that there has not been to the, all this magnanimity and tolerance that we hear about in Islamic history, but actually a relatively unbroken history of violence and hostility toward unbelievers. It's all laid out in this book. Well, I'll definitely keep an eye out for it, and you know, it's been an enlightening conversation. I hope uh, people will listen to more of what you have to say, and uh, thank you so much for coming on. Okay, thank you. Pleasure. That was Robert Spencer. Um, great conversation we had. Now, in the uh, closing seconds of the show, I have to announce uh, next week, we'll be back at the same time, Monday at 2 p.m., or you can always listen in later. Um, my guest then will be George Allen, a former governor and senator from Virginia, so be sure to tune in for that. Well, I'm uh, signing off once again, so I'll see you next time. Thanks.